Is America a force for good in the world? I was talking to this kid, 23 year old, who was, you know, born and raised in Bolivia, had grown up and lived there. And his parents had just moved to Iowa to be to be surgeons. And he was talking my ear off about how desperate he was to get to Iowa. And we were like sitting in a bar in like this two million person city in beautiful Bolivia with like, you know, people from all over the world and this unbelievable city surrounded by the Andes Mountains and like gorgeous Bolivian women and Australian tourists. And, and this kid's like, I can't wait to get to Iowa. And I'm like, dude, what? Like, what are you talking about? You know, um, like no offense to Iowa. I mean, like, cool state. Some offense to Iowa. Welcome, everybody, to the Tangent Show podcast. I'm your host, Rajiv Sethyal, and I'm thrilled to invite back onto the show today, Isaac Saul. You may know him, especially if you've been listening to the Tangent Show, because I love Isaac. I love what he's doing. He heads up something called Tangle, which has grown by leaps and bounds. It is a, an online newsletter as well as a podcast where he looks at what's happening on the what's happening in the world, looks at the take from the left looks at the take from the right, and then gives his take, which is often the only one that I care about. I love Isaac Saul. <laughs> Please welcome back to the Tangent Show, everybody. Isaac Saul, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on, Rajiv, and appreciate you continuing to read uh, through. I'm sure we disagree sometimes, so I appreciate you hanging around, man. Uh, you know, it's it's hard for me to find too many times where we do disagree. I was actually talking about it with my brother, Rakesh Sathyal, who is a fairly prominent queer author, and he's pretty left, you know, but I was, we were talking about your take on the Middle East, the one that dropped that got, you know, 14 million or more views by now, probably even more. And uh, he agreed. It was a very reasoned, measured take, and he loved it as much mm. as I did. I'm glad to hear that, man. That's great to hear. Yeah, that, that's awesome. So look, let's jump in because I've got a lot of questions. It can be a conversation, but usually it's more of an interview just because I really want to pick your brain about a lot of things. We're going to jump into your takes as well as get to know you a little bit. We didn't get to do that last time. So again, I'm honored that you have returned to do a part two when you indicated there's some still some meat on the bone. So let's jump into this bone or this meat or whatever, can, whatever completes <laughs> that analogy or metaphor. So look, uh, you know, what are some of the best ideas you've heard to bridge the divide in this country? There is a divide in case you're just tuning in. Uh, do you think that the USA needs another moonshot, so to speak? And if so, what would that be? And do we need something, I don't know, to bring us together? Or have you heard of any ideas that help with this process like open primaries, open primaries, pronouncing it right, maybe a start, open primaries or ranked choice voting? A lot of questions and we can unpack each one if you'd like. Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there is a lot there. I mean, I think there's sort of two separate questions. One is a policy prescription for, you know, how we create an election system that I think is not driven by the most partisan actors. I think open primaries are a great solution to that. I mean, one of the one of the big issues that we have right now and in many states that don't have open primaries and congressional districts that don't have open primaries is that the people who turn out in primary elections, which are usually low turnout elections, are people who care about politics a lot and tend to be really partisan in our era of polarization. So in a really simple way, we need the kind of normy American who tunes into politics 20 minutes a day and is pretty moderate and doesn't feel super strongly about 
every issue to actually show up for elections. Sometimes these people are called like low information voters. I think that they are normal people who have lives that, you know, they can't follow Donald Trump's every move and they can't understand the intricacies of all the conflicts in the Middle East, but they like certain ideas and they don't like certain ideas and they know the way that very specific policies impact them on the day to day. And those people need to vote in primary elections and it's hard to get them out as it is. It's even harder when, you know, they're boxed out of specific primaries in states where they feel like maybe their vote doesn't matter. So, you know, like a simple example is if you're a Republican in New York, then you don't feel like your vote matters a lot. And in some districts, you are a registered Republican, which means you can't even participate in the Democratic primary, which it, you know the person who wins the Democratic primary is going to win a general election if they're running for a congressional seat in most places in New York, or if they're running for governor or mayor of New York City or whatever. And so you just don't show up to vote. You can't participate. And so the kind of Democratic progressive partisans fight it out and usually bring somebody into the fray who maybe is more left than the general public. So that that kind of thing is an issue that I think we can fix. I think open primaries are a great solution. I think more uh, voters who are either registered independent or in states where independents can vote either way is another solution. And I think people from both parties just actually turning up for primary voting is probably the best solution. It's the easiest one is, you know, just show up and vote. A lot of people don't vote and then complain and bitch about the results, which is really frustrating. Um, so that's sort of a policy thing that I think would moderate the politicians we have, which would bring the country together, uh, you know, on a more sort of, uh, I guess, squishy or feel good note about, you know, how do we bring everybody together? How do we resolve things? I am a big proponent of just the talking and engaging element. I mean, I get emails from my readers all the time who are like, you know, I'm 65 year old straight white male. I'm Christian and I'm religious and my granddaughter's 18 and she's non-binary and she's super liberal. And I think she's a fascist and I don't know how to talk to her or whatever, or somebody who like, lives in Kentucky and their neighbor's a diehard Trumper and they're a lifelong Democrat and they're scared of them. And my answer is always like, you know, buy a six pack of beer and go over and knock on your neighbor's door and actually invite them to have a conversation. I mean, most people care about similar things. Most Americans, I honestly believe are decent people who just want to make a good living and you know, have kids and have those kids be safe and feel like, you know, their rights aren't being infringed upon. Um, and especially on the generational stuff, you know, you can learn a lot from just asking questions and, and giving people a chance to answer them honestly and speak in a, in a setting where they feel like they can be honest or open about their views. So, you know, my rule A is actually try and talk to people. You might learn something. It might not be as scary or different from you as you think. And my rule B is when you do that, see if you can literally just ask three questions before you say anything about yourself, before you try and convince somebody that what they just said is wrong, before you share your own opinion. I mean, that's something I do all the time when I talk to people or you know, I meet someone, they hear what I do and they want to engage about politics and they often want to hear my opinion. And I have this count in my head that I always try and hit, which is just 
ask three questions about this person and their views before you start, you know, getting on your soapbox and spewing your stuff because you can learn from everybody, even the people who are are quote unquote low information voters and the people who are really, really dialed in and really partisan. And we just don't do enough of that as a country. I don't think we talk to each other enough right now. Let's role play a little bit. Let's say I meet you at an airport and I find out what you do. I go, oh, Isaac, that's really cool. You run Tangle. Um, what do you think about, you know, whether kids should be able to transition before they're 18? What would you say? Yeah. Uh, well, what I would try and say to you is something like, you know, I think it really depends on what the the family and the the doctors who are supporting that family think that the kids should do. That's kind of my personal experience. But I don't know. Do you know any trans people? Have you ever met a trans person? Like, what's your experience been like engaging someone like that? I mean, and oftentimes the kinds of people ask that sort of question the answer is no, they haven't. And they, right. they do a lot of reading about this stuff or they, you know, they're consuming this issue through their kind of partisan news lens and they feel strongly in certain ways about it. But that that is like, you know, give a little taste of my opinion and then sort of inquire about why they might be curious about it or why this might be one of the first things they want to ask me about. And that is something that has literally happened to me before, <laughs> not in an airport, but like, you know, someone meets me and they're, Oh, you're a politics reporter. Yeah. And, and then they're like, what, what the hell is going on with all these trans kids in the U S you know, like, how do you write about that? And I'm like, well, I mean, I don't know. What do you mean? Like, do you have a trans daughter or something? Like, why are you asking that question? You know? And it's like, yeah. and then you hear a little bit about, and, you know, wh why this is something that's the top of mind for them. And you either hear that, oh, maybe they do have someone in their life or they're like, oh, I just read this thing on Breitbart yesterday about how, like, <laughs> you know, the the teachers are in And you're like, all right, well, you know, I don't know if every I believe every word of that story. You know, they have a little bit of an agenda. It's kind of a right wing website. I read it sometimes, too. But, I, you know, I take it with a grain of salt and and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a pivot to questions kind of guy is often how I at least like to start conversations. That's great. No, you, you demonstrated that masterfully. And yeah, that was actually the first question that popped to mind only because I don't know, I'm so dialed into the zeitgeist of what every American, every low information voter feels in this country. No, I don't know. <laughs> it just, it does feel like the most charged issue, one of the most charged issues out it is, there it is, and, yeah. and, and, and that sort of thing. But no, that, that's a great demonstration of that. What do you think of ranked choice voting? I am pro ranked choice voting. I understand why some Republicans and conservatives have skepticism about it. I think, you know, there's a there's sort of a two part thing. One is that in a lot of places where ranked choice voting might become law or gets implemented, the sort of party pick Republican is going to have a harder time getting elected because I think your standard Republican politician who wins a primary right now in this current political moment is a little bit more extreme than your average American. And so Republicans know that they know their primary voters are putting forward people that are tougher to elect in general elections. And so they don't want ranked choice voting in some general elections because that would be a threat to a lot of their candidates who get through primaries. But if you're doing ranked choice voting in open primaries and you're doing it from the start, I think they should have a lot less 
opposition to it. I mean, there are some decent arguments against ranked choice voting, you know, in the sense that you can, the way the vote can split sometimes is you can end up with a candidate that nobody's really happy with still, you know, Mm -hmm. if like, if it happens in a very specific way, you get down to like this third choice candidate or fourth choice candidate who wins a bunch of second and third place votes. And then nobody actually gets the candidate that they really wanted. And then you have a really displeased group of voters, which I understand that's a risk. I would argue we're getting that right now. I mean, the (laughs) Congress is, uh, you know, the approval rating for Congress is like 13% or something. And while in individual districts, you see that number go up, um, it's still pretty rare to find a member of Congress or even a senator these days who has really strong approval numbers. So I like ranked choice voting because it takes a little bit of the binary away. It doesn't make it a lesser of two evils vote. And it adds some nuance to, you know, who you want to support and and how much weight you want to throw behind them. I mean, there are candidates that I'm totally could tolerate as a voter. And then there are candidates who I really, really want to win. And then there are candidates who I don't want anywhere near, you know, Congress or the Oval Office or whatever. And being able to rank those and leave certain candidates off entirely, um, I think is a pretty powerful way to do it. And I wasn't always convinced of ranked choice voting virtues, but I've interviewed a lot of people who are advocates and I've interviewed people who um, don't like ranked choice voting. And I'm far more compelled by the advocates arguments than I am by the arguments against them. Just, you know, on a, on a surface level thing, I I think there are a lot more, convincing and i think we saw you know in states like alaska last year that ranked choice voting is a really effective way to represent the populace alaska is a notoriously divided and kind of heterodox political state and they had ranked choice primaries and a ranked choice general election and they ended up with a sort of trumper republican governor a moderate Republican member of Congress and a, or a moderate Republican member of the Senate and a Democrat in Congress. And that's a good outcome. That's representative of the people who live there. And I think that's like totally fine that Alaska can do that. And is totally representative of the voters and is probably a reflection of the fact that the system works the way it's supposed to really. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a really good way of, of digesting it for me. I didn't know that it was more conservatives that were not into it. Is is that because the average Republican candidate is more to the right than the average Democrat is to the left? I I don't it, I mean, it's hard to I think I think, yes, that's true. I don't know if that is why Republicans tend to oppose it. I think the biggest issue is that. If you have ranked choice voting, you're going to end up with more moderate politics. And in the places where ranked choice voting is seeing a big push, like a state like Alaska, for for example, um, Republicans thought that they had somebody who could beat Lisa Murkowski, you know, a Trump-esque Republican who could beat Lisa Murkowski in the Senate race. And they weren't able to do that because of ranked choice voting. They thought that Sarah Palin was going to win, you know, in in her House race, but that didn't happen because of ranked choice voting. And so 
they're not seeing, I think, a, oh, this is reflective of Alaska's population the way I am. They're seeing we just lost two races that we would have won if this was not a ranked choice voting election. And so, you know, that that's one of the the really tough things about our current sort of duopoly and and politics is it's it's in a lot of instances just gets reduced to straight up red versus blue house seats senate seats what kind of votes do we have and so you know the party leadership says we don't like ranked choice voting and then everybody down the line says all right we don't like ranked choice voting i guess so you know i think if republicans were seeing positive results or if you know they saw ranked choice voting get implemented in a state like new york and they aid into democrats house delegation there their tune would change pretty quick right but that just hasn't happened yet so i don't think it's so much about the system as it is just a results thing and you know democrats i'm sure would be opposed to ranked choice voting if it was going to hurt them too i don't sure. mean to make this like republicans are the only ones who think this way but um, right now, I think it benefits moderate politicians. I think Democrats are a little bit more moderate politically. And I think in the states that we're seeing it unfold, it's it's been more beneficial to them so far. I've heard you say you didn't think January 6th was an insurrection. I think I know what you mean, but I'd love to hear your take <laughs> on this. Oh, man, jumping right in. Huh? <laughs> yeah, uh, right, right from the very, very general to the very, very specific. Yeah, I mean, look, th- First of all, I, I think, you know, there are kind of some squishy legal definitions around insurrection. You can go look up, you know, the Oxford term. Um, and then there's sort of these legal terms. Different states have different terms to define it. The Constitution implies certain meanings of it that are tied directly to things like the Civil War and actual kind of like military incursions against the United States. My position is that I think January 6th was a lot closer to a bunch of sort of like idiots drinking Budweiser who decided they were going to storm the Capitol and take pictures of like them putting their feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk than it was to a group of militants who were trying to overthrow the United States government and stop the peaceful transfer, the peaceful transfer of power. I think they effectively did the latter as a group, as a collective, but I think the vast majority of the people who were there on that day were just Trump supporters who got caught up in the moment and ended up just following this huge wave of people to the Capitol. And then, you know, for what it's worth, a few hundred of them, I think, rioted and acted really violently and clashed with police and, you know, th- there's something like 900 people who have been charged with kind of these more serious violent crimes and misdemeanors. And, you know, the, the whole collection of people, I think, is still less than a thousand. There were thousands of people who were there that day. So, you know, the Justice Department is not pulling any punches. I think they're charging pretty much everybody they can charge for for what happened that day. And I think it's representative of the fact that a majority of the people there were sort of onlookers and maybe a little bit more passive, like saw this capital get breached. And, you know, I've been a dumb 25 year old kid before who's been caught up in like a sports riot. Like my college football team wins a game and we're like, yeah, let's like light this table on fire and flip this stuff. You know, it's like, 
that it, it's hard to sort of, it's hard for me to sort of watch that and be like, okay, every person here is guilty of rebellion against the United States and deserves mm-hmm. to be thrown in jail for 15 or 20 years. And you can watch the videos from January 6th of people clashing with police. And then you can watch the videos of January 6th of like people walking through the Capitol with their cell phones out, taking pictures of, you know, the halls of Congress and they're like with their kids and they're clearly just like, Oh my God, they got through, let's walk in and go check it out and see what's yeah. going on. You know? Um, so it's a hard thing to parse. I think the guys who are the proud boys, armed, organized type extremists who were actually back channeling with each other and actually had plans to obstruct the, the counting of the presidential electors and, and wanted what happened that day to happen. I think you can make a case that those guys are guilty of insurrection I think on the whole labeling that day as like a group of insurrectionists um, is a little bit misleading. And I usually use language like the, the riots or the rioters and, you know, the guys who really clearly had very evil in intense and disruptive intense who were like ready to kill people and take blood and wanted this sort of disruption. They're getting the book thrown at him and going to jail, even the ones who weren't even there that day. Um, so, you know, I think we're seeing some justice meted out in that regard, but yeah, I struggle with the insurrection language because I think it it invokes a sort of image of somebody that I don't think is representative of the average person who was there on January 6th. I think that's that's a fair point about the broader group. I mean, then there were a number of people, and I think you've gotten at this a little bit, which is the ones who showed up with, you know, uh, with tools and and, and, and with the intent to enter the Capitol. I mean, that seemed it's not like they were they just threw a rock through a window. They they showed up with the the uh, the intent to come in. And it does feel to some extent, to a large extent, that Donald Trump did incite this. Like, this is what he wanted to happen. He wanted to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And as an American, it hurts to watch our streak get broken 240 years of of that. And now that's gone. We we can't say that anymore. That's a thing of the past. I, I don't agree with throwing Donald Trump off of the ballots in states because I think it needs to be either proven in a court of law or passed by some legislative body. Or I don't think that Colorado can just go, you know, we're a, we're a panel and it was four to three or whatever it was. And let's just throw him off the ballot. I think that's that's pretty anti-democratic, actually, even though I'm the last person you would call a Trump supporter. That said, what do you say about that? Like the more focused uh, thing of calling Trump, uh, you know, Maybe not an insurrectionist because that has been proven, but do you think his intent was insurrection or at least staying in power? And do you think that was the intent of some of the people who were there? I think his intent was very clearly to delay the transfer of power to Joe Biden. And I think he believed and believes that the election was stolen from him and that he had an opportunity or perhaps had a chance to actually change the outcome in court, which makes everything that's sort of born out of that gets complicated. Um, You know, on the one hand, it's like, okay, if he really thought that he was the one fighting for democracy, if, if the election really was stolen and he truly believed that there was something afoot that he had this closing window of opportunity to fight, 
then you could frame him as sort of this, you know, pro-democracy person who was like fighting for the future of the constitution and making sure that nobody ever stole an election again. And certainly some of his supporters view it that way. The other lens is, you know, if somebody steals your computer and they take it to their apartment and then you go break into their apartment and steal the computer back and it turns out it's not your computer, you're still guilty of breaking into somebody's apartment and stealing their computer. So like your belief doesn't actually matter and isn't really relevant to the crime the 2020 election was not stolen. And so Donald Trump's belief that it was is sort of beside the point in a lot of ways. And I think, uh, you know, maybe it, it lessens the the moral nature of what he did. If you believe that he really believed he was doing something good, but from a criminal standpoint, it's still a crime to, to go commit like some of the acts he committed. Um, I am way, way, way more offended, or I guess uh, maybe offended is not the right word. I'm way more upset and bothered and um, interested in seeing some kind of judicial resolution to the things he did before and outside of January 6th, which was you know, calling election workers in Michigan and Georgia and pressuring them Mm -hmm. to change the outcomes of results and throw out ballots and find certain ballots. I mean, to me, those actions were actually a lot more threatening to our institutions, to the outcome of the election, to, you know, democratic norms as a whole. And I find them way worse than, you know, holding a Trump rally in DC and being like, be peaceful, but also let's give them hell and then like letting whatever will be, will be out of that. I mean, that's classic Trump and the worst case scenario basically happened because of it. But, you know, he has a right to go have that rally and bring his supporters together. I think he paid just enough lip service to the kind of be peaceful element in that speech and in the, you know, that incitement that he's going to have some avenues legally to get away with it, but he doesn't have many legal avenues to cover up the things he did leading up to January 6th, which to me were a lot more dangerous. I, I, I hear that. I think also just standing by and letting it happen was the thing that really is egregious where there were reports of his just watching it on TV, watching it unfold, members of Congress, senators calling him saying, hey, please stop this. And he just didn't for a long time, meaning that is obviously then what he wanted to happen. So I think there's I don't know. I to me, there's a lot of more than even circumstantial evidence to suggest that, yeah, he he wanted whether we call it an insurrection or not, he wanted to stop the peaceful transfer of power. So I think that to me is where it it feels doesn't feel disingenuous to call it an insurrection. Uh, that said, I think, well, let me ask you this. I mean, before the election, you think I, what is it? 25% of Republicans say they won't vote for him if he's convicted. I mean, whether that's wrongful or whatever else, but you know, what do you think before the election, we get a conviction in one of these four cases? I would be pretty, I don't want to say surprised. I don't see the timeline moving fast enough for us to get a resolution on one of the big cases, which I think are 
the you know the the justice department's election interference case the case in georgia and the mishandling of classified documents case i think that there is a pretty good chance that he gets convicted in at least one of those to me the mishandling of classified documents one sort of reads like a slam dunk case when i've read the indictment and you know legal analysis of it I'd be pretty surprised if he didn't get hit with at least a few charges on that. The election interference case in Georgia is very complicated because it's so novel and, you know, his actions were novel, which produces a novel sort of criminal indictment. Also, we have a prosecutor there who now is sort of in her own kind of hot water controversy because of this relationship she had with somebody she hired and, how that's going to impact or delay the case. I have no idea. I think that is like totally uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. And then the justice department's case, I think is wide reaching and on pretty solid ground. You know, it doesn't charge him with insurrection, but it's lays out pretty clearly the elements that I have said, you know, are the most egregious to me, which is using, you know, the, his office to sort of pressure these state level officials He's got fraud charges in there, presenting fraudulent electors, you know, um, obstructing a government proceeding. I think they have a pretty strong case against him. It's going to be heard in D.C. Not good for Trump. They've tried to move it. Hasn't happened. All that stuff makes me think that, you know, there's a decent chance he faces a guilty conviction there. How that criminal sentence plays out whether it's, you know, a plea deal or Trump decides to drop out of the race or, you know, he's like an elected president elect who's facing jail time. I mean, there's so much crazy shit that could happen if that goes down. The election is 10 months away and, you know, they have to get people in court. They need to go through months and months of trials and deliberations. And, you know, the timeline to me doesn't look great for something coming down before the election. And Trump is, you know, they call him Teflon Don for a reason. I mean, he's got good lawyers and he is going to obstruct and delay as long as humanly possible because he wants to win the election first before anything happens and he wants to stay on the ballot. And so, you know, there are a lot of different avenues to do that in our judicial system. You know, our system moves slow and it's deliberate. And in a lot of ways that's really good but in instances like this it's kind of bad and and you know can tilt the scales i guess toward the negative so i i wish and hope that we'd get a resolution to all of these cases before the election because i think the voters should have that but i'm not totally sure that that's going to happen based on what we're seeing so far i hear what you're saying it's a wide-ranging topic and at some point maybe we drink a budweiser like you said not a bud light though not a bud light <laughs> Just a budweiser over it so let's see what happens so is america a force for good in the world that's that's quite a uh, quite a pivot that i'm making here but a question that I, I i do struggle with from time to time how do you feel about our place in the world these days i uh- I do think so. I actually just the other day I took a a you has a new political quiz up on its website. I actually don't know if it's new. I think it's a couple of years old, but somebody sent it to me and it's who, like who a 16 it? Pew. Oh, Pew, um, Pew, yeah, Pew, Pew Yeah, and it's okay. like a it's like a 16 question 
uh, you know, survey about your views. And then it tells you what your political leanings are. And I got ambivalent, right. Which I thought was really funny, not how I would categorize myself and, you know, ambivalent. So one of the things it said was like, you're probably not very politically engaged. Amazing. It's like, okay, well, I, you know, this is like literally my job. All I do is read and think about politics, but I think the reason why, you're a low information right? voter. Isaac. Yeah, exactly. The reason why I think it, rated me that way was because the survey included a couple questions about how you thought the United States like military presence should be and whether we should be the superpower and whether we should invest in that. And uh, I actually do think we should be. And I think that's a pretty typical conservative view. And I think um, that sort of pushed the meter over to the right, despite my sort of more left-leaning social views. So Yes, I believe the United States is a force for good in the world. I think if you don't believe that, you should travel around the world more and talk to people who live in other countries. And that's not to say everywhere you go, people are going to be like, oh my God, the United States is the best. Certainly not, especially not if you travel in Europe or the Middle East. But in a lot of places, people view America still, I think, as like a beacon for what a citizen-run free country looks like. And we have a lot of values and laws and cultural beliefs about freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of religion that are being emulated all across the world. I think the biggest scar on our record has been the last 30 to 40 years of military invention or intervention all over the world in a lot of ways that was unnecessary and you know all the regime propping up and sort of clandestine destruction of world leaders we didn't like and things like that that have been really destabilizing in South America in the Middle East but you know we still get people from Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria who want to immigrate here, a lot of them. And, you know, we, I, I was just in Bolivia uh, doing a, a motorcycle trip through Bolivia. And on my last night there, I was in this hostel at like a little hostel bar before I went to the airport and I was in um, La Paz and I was talking to this kid, 23 year old, who was, you know, born and raised in Bolivia, had grown up and lived there. And his parents had just moved to Iowa to be, to be surgeons. And he was talking my ear off about how desperate he was to get to Iowa. And we were like sitting in a bar in like this 2 million person city in beautiful Bolivia with like, you know, people from all over the world and this unbelievable city surrounded by the Andes mountains and like gorgeous Bolivian women and Australian tourists. And, and this kid's like, I can't wait to get to Iowa. And I'm like, dude, what? Like, what are you talking about? You know, um, like no offense to Iowa. I mean, like cool. State, uh, some offense to Iowa. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> cornfields and flatlands, whatever, you know, like how stupid know. are the people of Iowa as Trump once? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so I said to him, I was like, really? Like you want to, like, why, why do you want to go to Iowa? And he, I mean, really truly looked at me like I was an idiot. And he was just like, my life would be way better there. Like, what? I don't know what you mean. Like, duh. I, I'd go get a good job and live in a country where I had rights and it was safer. And, 
you know, like Bolivia is one of the most corrupt places in the world. The government doesn't function. Healthcare is a mess. You know, you pay bribes everywhere you go, all this stuff. I mean, and he's just like, yeah, duh, like Iowa way better. You know, we have the Andes mountains. Cool. But like, I want freedom and good wages and like worker protections and a great education and yada, 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 yada. So like, you know, that reality I think still exists and that's anecdotal, but I think, you know, there's data on that too. So I I do think we're still a force for good. I think if you look around at the other potential global world powers, places like China and Russia and, you know, even Germany, whose moral compass, I think, wavers sometimes. France, sometimes. whose moral compass, I think, wavers sometimes. Um, you know, there are other really strong, developed militaries and, you know, global superpowers who I would not want having the reins. And, you know, we are far from mistake free, but the truth is we're often the ones who are responsible for making the tough decisions or we're the ones who are expected to step in and help. And that leads to a lot of mistakes, you know, I mean, um, France didn't decide to go in and get Osama bin Laden like we did, but the world supported us. Everybody wanted us to do that, but the United States did. And we were the ones who screwed it all up and, you know, fucked up in Afghanistan and brought destabilization in the Middle East. But it was like, Nobody else was going to do that. And they all wanted us to do it. And so we did it. And like, that sucks. We, we take the burden of that too, but, um, much rather us than China or Russia, in my opinion, who are countries that I think act with, uh, less moral clarity and less devotion to, you know, personal freedom and liberty and things that I value in like a secular, um, democratic society. I love that. I love that all-encompassing nature of of your answer. And yes, I think there are times where you look at, you know, Bowling for Columbine and Michael Moore's, you know, three-minute montage over Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. And it shows all the times that we knocked over governments and all the dictators that we took out. And yeah, the half a million or more, or maybe fewer, but the fact that it's around half a million or or so Iraqis that died during an unnecessary war. I mean, I, I think that it's like you're saying, though, I mean, if you're, uh, you know, we just watched the uh, the NFL football, uh, the, the playoffs rather. And, you know, if, if you're asked to make uh, decisions, sometimes you're going to make bad decisions. It doesn't mean every single time that you're going to get it right. Yeah. And I would say, like, you know, don't discount the other side of it, too. I mean, you know, Russia invades Ukraine. And where does everybody look? They look to us, you know, like mm-hmm. we're the country that actually stands up and puts the money behind them and supports them. And I think there are a lot of cynics who look at what's happening and are like, oh, here's the United States funding its proxy war against Russia through Ukraine. Ukraine didn't ask to be invaded. And Ukraine, for as many issues as it has, corruption, whatever, uh, is is was a free sovereign state of 40 million people yeah. that got invaded because a psychopathic authoritarian leader decided that he wanted it to belong to Russia again. And nobody was prepared to do anything without our leadership, without us stepping up. And that's a just war to fight that not a single American soldier has died in God willing, none will. Um, But 
Ukraine would have fallen in a week if it wasn't for us. And Ukrainians know that. Volodymyr Zelensky knows that. The Ukrainians I speak to know that. And they they don't, you know, we don't deserve their thanks and gratitude, in my opinion. I think we did the thing that is necessary to do if you're going to be the principal of the world. But, um, you know, if it were China or if it were Russia or if it were even Australia or France or Germany who were at the helm and had control over how that played out, I think a lot of countries maybe would have backed down and not put up the money or the fight that we did. And so, you know, we do the right thing sometimes too, as often as we get criticized for doing the wrong thing. I asked you this last time, but wanted to check in, you know, at McKinsey, they had this hopometer or hopometer, <laughs> however we want to pronounce it, where 100 was extremely hopeful and zero was the point of deepest despair. How hopeful are you feeling about the direction of the country? And has America seen its best days? It seems like you are, are fairly hopeful, but I don't want to put words in your mouth or numbers in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't know that America seen its best days, I think. I can make a pretty compelling argument that if, you know, you had a choice to get dropped in any time period in American history, you would probably pick this one or maybe like 2019 right before COVID hit. That's what you uh, said last time. I thought that was a good answer too. Yeah. Yeah. Sometime in the last five years is probably what I would choose. Uh, but I would say the current state of our national politics definitely has me feeling pretty down. Um, yeah, right. You know, I'd put myself somewhere in like the, the 25 to 35 range, I think certainly, you know, not feeling super hopeful about the fact that somehow we are ending up with a Donald Trump, Joe Biden redux. I mean, that has sucked a lot of hope out of me. Yeah. Um, I was very <laughs> optimistic that Biden would, pass the torch and that a Republican would beat Trump in a primary. And I don't think either of those things are happening. So, you know, if that had gone the other direction, I would have said somewhere in like the 50, 60, 70 range, I think, right. because, you know, if you take that out of it, um, we've recovered really well from the pandemic. Yeah. Life is basically totally normal here again. Our economy is doing really well. We have a huge problem on the southern border that needs to be addressed. But, you know, prices are coming down. Unemployment's under 4%. A lot of economic sentiment is just turning around now all across the country. Um, I think we are really entering a sort of prosperous era for workers. We've seen both because of unions and because of high demand for workers, we've seen huge wage bumps, huge shifts in the power dynamics between, you know, corporations and the workers that they are employing where all across the country, worker activation and worker activism has sort of tipped the, the balance, I think, in the favor of workers, which is a really, really good thing. And, you know, all that stuff is good. Um, and I think life for a lot of people is actually getting better in the last two or three years. But I think we have a lot of instability globally. I think the immigration stuff is a really big issue. And I think, you know, the fact that our voting population couldn't find two people better than Trump and Biden is really, really deflating. It is. I, you know, and the, the irony, I guess we would call it is 
any other generic Republican probably destroys Joe Biden and the same thing on the other side. I think any other generic Democrat, whether it's and these aren't generic, but Gretchen Whitmer or, you know, you interviewed Dean Phillips. And I, I liked everything that uh, a lot. I liked, I think, everything that he said. It, he, he made a lot of sense or Gavin Newsom even or Mayor Pete, any of these. Any of these fools, as I always refer to a group of people, any of these <laughs> fools uh, would do a really good job of uh, giving Trump a run for his money and probably besting him. And it's just really, really funny. It's not a funny haha, but really weird funny that well, we're, we're pitting these two up again. But hey, you know, it's like the Super Bowl, you know, it's Niners and Chiefs again. So maybe just this country likes rematches. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. What What do you think of as the most uh, fascinating modern what if in U.S. politics? What I mean by that is, you know, you think of like Gore defeats Bush in 2000. Like, what if it would have gone that way? And it almost did. Obama loses in 2012 and we get Romney, which might head off Trump or Colin Powell runs and wins in 2000 or 2008. Do any of those or anything else uh, come to mind where you're like, yeah, it's kind of an interesting like what if? Obviously impossible to answer, but just want your take. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's a really interesting question. Um, this was one of the ones that you were gracious enough to share with me to think about before the interview, and I put some thought into it because I thought it was a, ve a very compelling uh, or a good thought experiment. And the one that I came up with that I think is actually, I was very proud of myself for this answer, is 9-11 uh, is being foiled. I think Ooh. that's my big what if. Um, I think the difference in the country that we're living in today, if that attack is caught by the FBI or the CIA, as many hundreds of, you know, terrorist attacks have been sort of foiled or disrupted in some way in the last 30 or 40 years. And the big one kind of got through and happened. I mean, it got George Bush reelected. It set off the war on terror in the Middle East. It dragged us into 20 years of, of wars. Um, it totally reshaped the way Americans think about their own security. I mean, I still have to take my shoes off and run all my stuff through a scanner at an airport. That sucks. Uh, you know, all, all these little things changed in our life from like the infringement of our privacy in the name of security and then all these really, really big things change in the course of American history in terms of, you know, George Bush was not particularly popular and became unbelievably popular very quickly. Um, the country sort of came together and rallied around this cause of like stamping out, you know, Islamic extremism and terrorism. And the result we got was we totally reshaped the Middle East in a really disruptive and I think bad way in a lot of ways. And that whole region is totally different, as is, you know, the entire axis of like political global allyship all across the world. I mean, we have like this sort of Russia, Iran, North Korea axis, and then we have this Sunni Shia axis in the Middle East. And then we have this kind of like United States NATO group and all of that has been like totally shaped by our wars in the Middle East and Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I think like I, I, I it's it's such a big, important moment in our country's history. I actually can't even imagine what it would be like if it didn't happen, like how different things would be, um, which is kind of stunning to think about. And all it would have taken was like one 
shrewd agent, you know, somewhere, however they foil, you know, terrorism right. plots catching this thing or one phone call got screened by the FBI and they got a lead on it and they stopped it. Um, so yeah, that's my, my big, what if is nine 11 gets foiled how different our country and the world looks today. I like that. I mean, apparently the Clinton administration said that it handed documents over to the Bush administration warning of an, of such an attack. And for a long time, I just took that at face value. I'm like, yeah, they probably did. Bush was an idiot. But then I'm like, well, that's fairly self-serving to say. I mean, I don't know if that's entirely (laughs) true. That's a great thing to be able to claim. But I don't know. It seems like there was some evidence to suggest that. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I I think there's a total, I mean, like similar to October 7th in Israel, there's Mm. an intelligence failure story um, to be told. Totally. But I also think what the i mean if you listen to like condoleezza rice who was in office at the time um in the bush administration you know what she says when she's interviewed about 911 like how they how could you have possibly missed this how could you have failed she has a really i thought kind of captivating answer which is that they had a failure of imagination which was you know at the time they knew there were these global threats but they never imagined that they would hijack a commercial airliner and fly it into the World Trade Center. Yeah, I thought I, like, I read that they had drawn up a scenario like that, or like I mean, it's 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 crazy for us to think about, but I don't think it's that crazy for. And again, like Monday morning quarterbacking and everything, but even taking that into account, I'm yeah. not guilty of that because I had read that no, that like there were scenarios that had envisioned that because I mean, planes are actually weapons. Yeah, no. And there, and, and the other thing that I guess the other thing that would maybe undercut her statement is that, um, you know, there was like World Trade Center bombings in the 90s before. Yeah, 93. But at the same time, you know, the, it is true that before 9 11, any provisions that we could have taken to sort of protect airplanes or to like screen for that kind of thing we didn't do so right. they, maybe they thought it was something that was po- possible or that they you know they had some kind of exercise sure. what do we do if this happens but i'm sure they've got like you know 500 of them and they got to rank their top five most sure. likely things and we're going to figure out ways to address that and this was just like not something they thought that you know some extremist group in Iraq or Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia, as it were, um, (laughs) could actually pull something off like this. And, you know, I think that's like a, just an interesting wrinkle to the, to the tale. And I like what she said, this kind of failure of imagination, you know, that some of this stuff is just not thinking in a creative way about what your enemy's thinking and taking some ownership over that, which I thought was pretty interesting. Look, we're uh, running out of time again, and that that's okay. We we have these good conversations, and I'm I'm grateful for them. Uh, to what extent do you think Joe Biden's low approval rating may be somewhat attributed to the fact that he is running for re-election? I mean, I know there are other <laughs> factors here. You know, the, actually, you're talking about Afghanistan. I mean, the pullout from Afghanistan is when his approval rating tanked, and then it tanked further with his handling, as we may call it, of the Middle East, the current crisis. But I mean, I thought about that. I was like, if you were just like James poking it right now, just like nailing it for four years and getting out, I wonder if he um, would have a higher approval rating. I think it's I think it's a hugely important element of it, honestly. Um, You know, I think he's done things and taken positions in our polarized era that were always going to upset a huge chunk of the country. So no surprises there. Like, you know, he uh, 
anything any president is going to do now or in the next 10 or 15 years based on how polarized the country is, is going to turn off 30 or 40% of the country. So seeing his approval ratings, you know, around 50, low fifties, high forties, um, is just not going to be surprising in this era, but I absolutely think that the negative polarization we have is a big contributor. And because of that, I think if he were saying I'm done after this year and passing the buck that he would be doing better than he is. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is because the fact that he's running again and that he's almost certainly going to be the nominee means that the conservative media ecosystem has to gin up as much opposition to him as possible, which means they're hammering him with negative coverage. You know, if this were Gavin Newsom was in the primary right now and was mm -hmm. leading among Democrats and the conservative media's focus was on him, I think Joe Biden would benefit from mm -hmm. that greatly from like a, you know, a coverage perspective. I mean, I wrote about this recently. I have a lot of readers who think he's like the worst president ever. And I have a lot of, pre I have, you know, a lot of problems with Biden's presidency for various reasons, but you know, you can make a pretty good case that he's at the very least been like an average president. You did. If you're measuring. I yeah. listened to it. It was quite, quite the litany. Yeah. I mean, if you're measuring just the things we traditionally measure presidents by, you know, like bills passed and impactful legislation and the economic indicators and those kinds of things. Like, you know, he has, again, a big immigration problem, but he's overseeing a pretty normal era of growth, wage growth, job growth. Um, he's passed legislation that's had bipartisan support, the infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act. He's fulfilled some promises to supporters doing something about climate change, getting gun reform legislation passed, gun control reform legislation passed. I mean, like he's done stuff. He hasn't been like totally obstructed. He hasn't been a lame duck president. Um, so, you know, I think you can make a case he's been a bad president. I don't think you can make a case he's been one of the worst ones. Yeah. I don't think you can make a case he's been one of the best ones either. Um, but yeah, so I, I think in a normal era, if he were, uh, if he were just saying, you know, I'm I'm doing what I said, I'm passing the torch, I think a lot of progressives would be more supportive of him too, and they're dragging down his his approval ratings right now. It's not just Republicans. Totally right. Look, I'm in about ten years ago in 2014, I predicted we had seven to ten years left before the country collapses, and I'm feeling pretty good about that prediction. I don't know don't if good is that. the right <laughs> feeling. Feeling good about the prediction, maybe not about the, what would that would entail. But if it does collapse this year or beyond, <laughs> um, who gets the blame for that? I mean, can we make a top five Hall of Shame kind of thing, or is it? <laughs> you, you, I mean, I don't know if, if if you want to go down that path, but is is it more like? You're like, dude, no, the country's not collapsing. It's, or, or yeah, hey, you know what? That's a possibility. And if so, here's here's who we can, or where we can lay the blame. I think our institutions are strong. The fundamentals of the country are are strong. Um, I don't think a collapse is coming. I think your prediction is going to end up being wrong. God okay. willing. I hope so. Inshallah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like I... So, yeah, I, so I don't, I don't have much interest in constructing the blame pyramid, even though I do really love blame pyramids. Um, <laughs> I will say that I think if we were to define, you know, what constituted a collapse, whether it was, you know, a civil war or a lack of peaceful transfer of power or whatever, um, 
you know, and we actually saw that happened. I think the circumstances of how that happened would define how I answered the question. Sure. I think it would not be, um, the answer would maybe not be as obvious as you think the first places I look wouldn't necessarily be the Donald Trump's Joe Biden's whatever. It would probably have more to do with, uh, you know, like Tucker Carlson and MSNBC executives mm -hmm. and CNN. And sure. I, I, I'm a media guy. So I look toward the people who influence the public's framework for thinking about things. Um, and I think there are a lot of people over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, big tech, quote unquote, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world too, who were really interested in making a lot of money and not really interested in the kind mm -hmm. of information they were spreading and whether it was, you know, healthy or not. And, uh, I have a lot of angst and frustration with those people more than I do with our political leaders who are, you know, politicians are politicians and they're always going to lie and incite and, you know, misconstrue things. And Politic. the media's job traditionally has been to sort of regulate that and suss out the BS from the real stuff. And I think they failed in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, it would depend how the collapse happened there's a lot of blame to go around and people who don't vote are also near the top of my list just for your listeners knowing. So please go vote and do something about it. I love that you answered that question. I think it's a hard one uh, to answer. And I, I appreciate that you actually name checked folks and, and at least positions to people and, and the broader society that has refuse to participate sometimes the the true low information voters or the true low <laughs> voters i guess we could call them if, if they're not really participating much so isaac anything to add or we're ready to wrap it up no that's it if you want to break out of your media paradigm go to readtangle.com and check out our newsletter and podcast and youtube and come join us we're on a journey towards finding uh, some nuance in the black and white making people a little more sane that's kind of what i'm going for and Anybody who listens to your podcast is is very welcome and encouraged to come join our community. And I'd love to meet them and see them and have them as readers and listeners. Fantastic. I love that. Maybe I inadvertently wore gray today. This is an audio podcast, but I did wear gray maybe to, <laughs> to bridge the, the black and white. So thank you so much, Isaac, for joining us on another episode of The Tangent Show. I've been your host, Rajiv, and I still am. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I did not give you time back. We blocked an hour, and I'm usually good about that, but uh, I didn't want to. It's cut all off. good, it dude. Good I mean, no, that was that was fun. Uh, it was a it was a well a well done hour. We covered a lot. <laughs>